I, I said to Ryan, I said to La, I said to a bunch of people this week, um, I don't know how I'm feeling about preaching this Sunday. One, I'm a bit rusty in my prep, so it's been a bit tricky. The content's, you know, easy. Talk about worldviews. And, um, and then the last time I was on this stage was quite an emotional and raw time of being very vulnerable in front of this community, La and I. And La and I were there this morning. And I just want to say a few things. It's, it's probably been the hardest season of my life. And it's still difficult and still hard in many ways. Um, but I can honestly stay, say as I stand here this evening that everything in my life because of Christ is better because of the season I've been through. I love Jesus more than I've ever loved Jesus. I've experienced Jesus in my weakness in profound and real and tangible ways. He is more real to me than he's ever been. Law and I love each other more than we've ever loved each other. Our family is flourishing. Our kids are well. Every friendship and relationship in my life has gone deeper because of this situation. I have incredible brothers and sisters. My experience of this community has been wonderful. Our now experience of this community has been wonderful. This has been a safe space for us to process and to journey and to walk this out. We felt honored, we felt carried, we felt prayed for and cared for. And it's been, been such a privilege and such a, an amazing opportunity to experience the goodness of God's community. You can speak about it a lot. And then there's this moment where we got to experience it. And that's been our experience. The eldership team has been phenomenal in serving and loving the church and serving and loving Law and I towards restoration and healing. We felt nothing but the love and the gospel being applied to our lives. Ryan and Kate have become, they always have been, but have become in new ways, wonderful brother and sister to Law and I. And um, I could go on for ages. God is good. He is real. He's powerfully at work in this world. He's powerfully at work in, in my life. And it has been so good to experience that through an incredibly painful and difficult season. Great. Let's change gears. <laughs> um, so we, sorry, there's this weird like stand thing with like alien tentacles on it. That's really bothering me. Um, anyways, I'll try to ignore those. Um, so we, as Ryan said, we're shifting out of James and it's been amazing being in the book of James. James has, has really challenged us as Christ followers, saying that we can't separate uh, what we think, believe and do from our relationship with Jesus, that they're, they're interconnected. And his heart and desire for us is to have a genuine faith and to not be self-deceived and living out of a false faith where we think we can do whatever we want, think whatever we want, feel whatever we want and disconnect those things from Jesus and still live in the fullness of being in relationship with Jesus. And I think that journey is gonna serve so much of what we're gonna speak about tonight and what we're gonna speak about over the next few weeks as we speak about sexuality. And tonight really is a bit of a prequel to the, the next six weeks. And I really do hope it will lay a bit of foundation for the conversations we're about to have and how to have the conversations and where to start the conversations. Because you see, as a pastor, as someone who's pastored lots of people and had lots of difficult conversations with people on topics that can really make emotions flare up and make things, um, and make people very angry and, and be incredibly divisive, I've learned a few things. And one of the things I've learned is that when the conversation gets really emotional and very incredibly divisive, it's often because we're having the wrong conversation. And these topics, things like 
justice and sexuality and ethics and abortion and how do I live a good life and what should I do with my time? What should I do with my money? What should I do with my life? What should I do with my sexual organs? What should I do with people around me? What political views should I take on? These things can be incredibly divisive and create great emotion in people. And I've learned that so often the reason they are this way is because we're having the wrong conversation or at least we started the conversation in the wrong place. Because you see, I think life, life is like a person who's throwing puzzle pieces at us. And we have these subjective experiences and we have things happen to us and we hear the stories of people close to us and the things that have happened to them. And we start to make, try to make sense of these puzzle pieces that are coming our way. Things like suffering or injustice, experiences that we've had, interactions with people, ambitions that we have, opportunities that come our way, struggles we're going through, relationships that we're engaging in. All these things come towards us and they're kind of like puzzle pieces. And as they come towards us, we grab these puzzle pieces and we go, how do these puzzle pieces fit, fit together? And as we try to fit them together, we create a picture. And I think this is why so often it can feel like when we have these conversations, either I'm crazy or the rest of the world is crazy. Or that, hey, how is it that you can even start to begin to think that or feel that? And I think a bit of the problem is because we're all putting our puzzle pieces together, arriving at different pictures and speaking from the picture that we have in front of us. And what I mean by I think we're starting the conversation in the wrong place or we having the wrong conversation is I think we need to be having the conversation of where's the box? Where's the puzzle box? Because on that box is a picture that's gonna help us make sense of all the puzzle pieces that are being thrown at everybody as they try to live their lives. And what is the box say? Where does the box say that all these puzzle pieces fit and fit together? What is the picture that we should all be making sense of our puzzle pieces with? And that's the conversation we want to have this evening. And as we turn to Jesus and as we look to Jesus and his words, I hope that we would see that there is a puzzle box. And there is a place for us to take the pieces that come our way in this life and make sense of them and figure out where they fit. And so as we look to Jesus, we're going to first look at the world we live in. Then we're going to see Jesus. We're going to look at three claims of Jesus, that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life. But before we do that, I'm going to ask Pilati to come up here and read the text for us. I'll be reading from John 14, verses 1 to 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thanks, Pilati. Um, let's pray before we dive in. Father, I ask that as we engage with your words, as we engage with... Uh, you, Father, the living God who's poured out his presence and his, by his spirit. God, that as each one of us, whatever puzzle pieces we're carrying into 
this venue tonight, God, that as we encounter you, you would help us to make sense of them. Help us to figure out where they fit and how to put them together. And God, I pray that as we do that before you, you would bring life and flourishing into our situations. God, we seek you, we need you, and we love you. Amen. So let's first look at the world we live in or making sense of the world we live in. As, these, as I've said, these puzzle pieces of life, these experiences, these sub- subjective experiences that we have and experiences of people close to, close to us that they have, as we put these puzzle pieces together and form that picture, what that picture simply is, is a worldview. It's our belief about how the world works. We start to formulate an understanding and we go, this is what is true about the world and this is how the world works. And whenever we're forming a worldview, whenever we're forming a set of beliefs on how the world works, what we're doing is we're answering some questions. Whether we're answering these questions consciously or subconsciously, we're answering questions as we try to figure out how is it that this world works. And some of those questions are very personal questions, questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world and how can it be made right? We answer those at a more personal level as these puzzle pieces come our way. And then there's some more universal questions that people have tried to answer, which are, what should we think about God and the nature of man and truth and knowledge and ethics? And over the centuries and over time, people have been putting these puzzle pieces of life together and trying to formulate a worldview, formulate an understanding of how the world works, what is true and real about this world. And there are many that that are formed, but they're kind of six big ones, if you can just pop that slide up. So it's theism, polytheism, um, you've got postmodernism, you've got humanism, and you've got a whole bunch of other isms. And we don't have time to go into all of them, but as a, as a, a team, we, we really do want to build a worldview course where we can, go really, we can go deep into understanding how it is that some people have answered the big questions in life and formulated worldviews. And instead of going into the six primary worldviews, what I want to do this evening is I want to unpack the primary worldview that I think exists in our time, in our generation, in our culture, and the one that is becoming the predominant worldview, which is secular humanism. And I want to say this, and I want to express secular humanism because I think it is the waters that we swim in. It's the world that we're a part of. And as I was prepping for this message, I was sitting in a bootlegger, working there, drinking my cappuccino, no, flat white. Why do I call it cappuccino? That's so what my mom does, okay, and, and I'm drinking it, and next to me is a table, two ladies talking, and I hear the word humanism. I'm like, ooh, I'm literally writing about how secular, okay, let's listen. And they were talking about how they think secular humanism is the predominant worldview. Now, if you have no idea what secular humanism is, don't worry, I didn't either until a few weeks ago. And basically, um, it's not normal to be talking about these things, but I was very encouraged. It is absolutely crazy that I'm busy prepping this and there are two people sitting next to me talking about it. I think they were lecturers. My e- I was struggling with the eavesdropping thing. It's loud and bootleggers. And I think they were lecturers and they were talking about secular humanism. And instead of trying to unpack technically what secular humanism is, I've written a bit of a story of how I think secular humanism answers the big questions that I mentioned earlier. I just want to read that. And as I read that, I hope it will express accurately, as much as I can, the worldview of our culture and time. And you will see that that in this worldview, 
there are things that you will resonate with and go, wow, I think that's good. And there are things you'll be like, oh, I don't know if I can believe that. And then there'll be things that you're like, oh, I really don't know where I land on that. This is complicated and this is confusing. But I put this forward as, as what I think is the, the predominant worldview of our time. Mindfulness, meditation, thinking positively, fasting, and general spirituality are incredibly important and helpful. They connect us to the bigness of what we are a part of, but these things should probably be disconnected from any specific God. There are so many claims about God and with over 200 gods, can any claim be true? Science in many ways has liberated us from a need to believe in God or gods. As through it, we make amazing discoveries about how the world works, filling in gaps in our knowledge and revealing our origins to likely be atheistic evolution. If anything, concepts of God might be getting in the way of us fully realizing man's potential. Therefore, man must look to himself to find meaning and purpose. The most authentic thing we can do is to fully become who we feel ourselves to be and then fully express ourselves in this world. Anything else would be to live a lie and an inauthentic life. Therefore, the most loving thing we can do for each other is give each other the space to find our truth and live out our truth as long as it does not harm anyone else. The world is not the way it should be, but through progress, we can make the world better. Through education, scientific advancement, and better governance, removing systemic injustice and speaking truth to power, throwing off unnecessary restrictions, responsibilities, and beliefs from previous generations, the old ways of doing things, this world will get better. Especially if every individual commits to getting 1% better every day, looks after the planet, and consumes responsibly. The world is better today than it was. Let's keep progressing in that direction. The hope we have is for a life that works. To live in a world where we can all sit in well-designed coffee shops, drinking good coffee, surrounded by diversity of every kind, thought, truth, cultures, beliefs, genders, and sexual orientations, Instagramming on our iPhones with no trolls or haters hating on anybody's truth, consuming what we want responsibly and sustainably, and finding happiness in our truth maximizing our personal freedom and pleasure. That I would say is probably the story of secular humanism in the world that we live in and how we are currently as a culture answering the big worldview questions. And there's a lot in there that is borrowed from Christianity to make it coherence. And the reason for that is because secular humanism is a post-Christian worldview. Christianity infused the world and then um, humanism, secular humanism um, arrive afterwards and steal some of the, the best elements of Christianity and try its best to remove Jesus from that worldview. Now, these are the waters we swim in. And in the same way this worldview borrows from Christianity, I felt a deep challenge for us this evening as we engage with worldviews and what Jesus has to say about how we should view this world. And that challenge comes with a story. La and I have learned a valuable lesson in parenting young kids. Never buy anything nice, it gets destroyed. <laughs> and so we needed a coffee table, so we're like, we are gonna buy the cheapest coffee table we can find, and we did. We bought a very cheap coffee table. And this cheap coffee table had a cheap veneer, wood veneer on top of this cheap coffee table. And sure enough, about three weeks in, Leila goes and sticks a big sticker on this veneer coffee table. I didn't do anything about it for a few days, so that 
sticker just settled on that veneer. And then one day I was like, this is irritating. So I went and I grabbed that sticker and I pulled it. And as I pulled it, all the veneer came off. And now we've got half veneer, half chipboard table, which is evidence why you don't buy nice things when you've got small kids. And in the same way that this worldview borrows from the Christian worldview, as we look to Jesus, I think there may be some of us in this room who claim to be Jesus, uh, claim to be Christ followers. And what we've done is we actually live in this worldview, believe what this worldview believes, and we've taken elements of Jesus and we've placed them as a veneer over our worldview. And if we had to pull off the veneer, you wouldn't see the deep grains of Jesus and his gospel running through your belief systems. You would see the chipboard of secular humanism running through your belief systems. So as we turn to the words of Jesus, let's open up our hearts to hear what he would have to say and how he would challenge us. John 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we're gonna look at those three things, those three independent claims, which are actually one claim, that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life. Let's look at the first one. Jesus is the way. Now there's a bit of context to this verse. So Jesus is starting to reveal to his disciples that, um, Jesus is starting to reveal to his disciples that uh, he's gonna leave them, that he's not gonna be with them anymore, that he's gotta go away. And he's not being very clear, he's being a bit cryptic because it's, he's not yet fully expressing the reality of the cross, the resurrection, and his return to be at the right hand of the Father to them. And so there's a bit of uncertainty and confusion that the disciples are experiencing. And, and rightfully so, there's a bit of anxiety because they're going, hey, Jesus, we, we gave up everything to follow you. We laid it all down. We literally dropped our fishing nets and followed you at your command to follow you. And we followed you for three years. And now you're telling us where you're going and you're not really telling us where you are going. And you really should tell us where you're going. And Thomas is asking a pretty practical question. Like, is it Jerusalem? Is it Nazareth? Is it Galilee? Like, where are you going? Just tell us so that we can get there. And Jesus answers him with quite a big claim and, and a philosophical one. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And Thomas's Jewish, his Jewish ears would have heard, why are you telling me that you're God when I'm asking you where you're going? Because that I am statement that Jesus makes is one that you see eight times in the book of John. You see it through the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's moments where Jesus is echoing God at the burning bush when God said, I am who I am. And in these I am statements, Jesus is making claims about divinity and about being God. And so he asks Thomas questions, a simple question about where you're going is, I am God and I am the way. And what Jesus means by the statement, I am the way, is it's got kind of two meanings. The one is, I am the way to the Father, I'm the way that you get to the Father, but I am also a perfect representation of the ways of God. I am a perfect representation of the ways of God. Verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says it so clearly, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I am a representation of the ways. And again, as a disciple, he would have understood that he's talking about the moral ways, the, the life-giving ways of God. And he's probably going, what are you going on about, Jesus? I just wanna know what city you're going to or what 
tree you're going to sit under this afternoon? Why are you telling me that you're reminding me that you're God? And why are you reminding me that you are the perfect representation of the ways of God? And Psalm 25 just, just shows how important the, knowing the ways of God are to a Jewish people. Psalm 25 verse 4 says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way he should choose. And what Jesus is saying to Thomas in this moment, he's saying, I am the map that you need to navigate through life. I am the map you need to know where it is you should go. Don't worry about the details. Don't worry about figuring it all out. You have everything you know need because you know me. As you look to me, Thomas, don't panic about the future. Don't panic about the destination. Don't panic about the, uh, the how you're going to get there. Just follow me. I am everything you need to know the way. And in these worldview conversations, people love to talk about mental maps. Mental maps being our belief systems and what we believe to be true about the world that help us navigate through life, through every day. We wake up in the morning and we go through life with a set of beliefs that helps us make our way through life and, and make sense of life as we go through them. And like any map, if these maps are aligned to what is true and real, we arrive at our destination. And if these maps are not aligned to what is real and true, we don't arrive at the destination we thought we were heading for. And there's usually chaos and pain there. La and I were invited to a friend's friend's holiday house with the friend who first invited us. Lots of connections there. And we were invited, it was on Bainscliffe, a lovely home on Bainscliffe, holiday home on Bainscliffe. And we got the address, I put it into Google Maps, but, and it said two hours, like, great, we got the plan. We're gonna drive over Nathan's nap, and as we drive over Nathan's nap, he'll probably sleep for the two hours. Paw Patrol downloaded and ready to go for Layla. Date drive for La and Ian. This is gonna be amazing. So we're driving, it actually went really well. Until about 10 minutes, we were about to arrive 10 minutes away from our destination. And I realized, hey, we're not really going to get over Bainscliffe in 10 minutes. This timing doesn't seem right. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's nothing on Bainscliffe because on the right is a drop to your death and on the left is a mountain, like literally a mountain sheer. I'm like, and I'm starting to panic. And children strapped into a car are like vampires who feed off the panic of their parents. <laughs> they can sense it. They're like, everything is going fine. And I just have this moment where my heart goes, I don't think the map's right. I don't think I put the right address in. And you can start to feel the temperature in the back seat start to rise. And everything is about to break loose and there's gonna be screaming and tears and chaos. You know when your child puts down TV and says, I'm done watching Paw Patrol, something is horribly wrong. <laughs> and I'm in this moment of panic and sure enough, we get to where the destination is and it's Bainscliffe Pass. It hadn't put the specific address in, it had just had the pin to the pass, which is literally in the middle of Bainscliffe. So I go, La, we're in the wrong place. I have no idea whether we're meant to go backwards or forwards. Can you phone them? No signal. No signal, can't reset the map, can't phone anybody. And I'm stuck in that moment going, I don't know which way we're meant to go. 
and the kids are starting to cry because they can sense my frustration and irritation at myself. And I'm like, God, I'm not going, God, I'm going, why, why did I not check my map before I left? Why did I not check the address? And it's either 20 minutes that way or it's 20 minutes that way. And if I go 20 minutes in the wrong direction, it's 40 minutes back to where I wanna go. And the consequences are real and I'm sweating. And life can be like that. Life can be like that. I don't know whether I'm meant to go forward with these puzzle pieces. I don't know whether I'm meant to go back. I don't know how to make sense of this. And I don't know where to, how to reset the map. I don't know where to find the answers. And we can feel incredibly lost in our lives. And it can feel like the consequences of making the wrong directional call is incredibly significant. And Jesus stands before Thomas and he says, I am the way, I am the map that you need. Follow me and you will get to the destination you need to get to and I will show you the way along the way of following me. And Jesus simply says, follow me to my destination. So that's the first claim of Jesus. I'm the map. I'm the way to where you want to go and I'm the way to get to where you want to go. But then the question has to be, but why Jesus? Why Jesus' destination and why Jesus' way? Are there not many destinations? Are there not many people and belief systems claiming a way? Why Jesus' way and why Jesus' destination? And that brings us to the second part of Jesus' claim. Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way and I am the truth. And as much as our maps correspond to reality, they are true, our mental maps. And as much as that my, my Google map responds to reality, it gets me to a life-giving destination. And it's just about whether the map is true and correct or not. No amount of wishful thinking on the middle of Bainscliff Pass made my destination appear or the pain and suffering I was going through go away. I could not wish into existence that which was not. My map was not leading me to truth. And the psalmist knows that the ways of God need to be true. And that's why he says this, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And Jesus' claim in saying, I am the truth is a, is a profound one. He's saying, I am the puzzle box picture. Not only am I the way, not only will I lead you to your destination, but I am the picture on the box that everything needs to be compared to to make sense. Yes, there may be many claims about boxes, puzzle bo piece boxes out there. I am the only one that's true. I am the only one that's true. That's the claim of Jesus. I'm the picture on the box. That's why you should follow my ways and to my destination because it is true. Now, the problem with this in our culture today is that the very concepts of truth are being questioned. What is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Isn't truth relative? Isn't truth subjective? Isn't it based on your personal experiences? Shouldn't you find your truth? There's this debate going on about truth. And what's interesting is in a postmodern culture, we think, hey, it's over the last 200 years as we've grown in knowledge and understanding that we've only started to question truth. It's because we're advancing and thinking more clearly. But the reality is this debate around truth goes way back, all the way to, at least back to the time of Jesus. 
Because at the center of Jesus being on trial and about to go to a cross, this very idea of truth is being questioned in John 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. There, 2,000 years ago, Jesus standing on trial and his judge is saying, what is truth? And the debate starts all the way back then. And the debate, the debate is a very simple one. The debate is about, is there such a thing as objective truth? Is there such a thing that there, that there is a moral standard and a way of doing things that absolutely every belief, thought, and system can be checked against to see if it is true or if it is false? That's objective truth. And then the other option is subjective truth. Is it not just about everybody's personal experience and everybody take, making sense of their own personal experience and living out their truth? That's the debate at the moment. And once again, I think that the debate starts in the wrong place. We're having the wrong conversation when we start with conversations about is there truth or isn't there truth? The first question we need to answer is, is there a God? That's where the debate on truth starts because if there is a God, that means that there is intent and there is planning and there is purpose behind the world. There is truth. And we should seek the intent and the purpose into which this world has been designed. But if there is no truth, I mean, if there is no God, then yes, truth starts with man. If we believe that man is the pinnacle of evolutionary, random evolutionary processes that just happen to start because of billions and billions and billions of years and a bunch of rocks collided, the Big Bang happened, the earth was formed, finally, after billions and billions and billions of years, and because of this random accident, life was formed, and at the end of that evolutionary process, now in the generation that we stand, man, people, humanity, then truth does start with us. Then at the center of truth is us, and we need to find it, we need to seek it, we need to invent it. And the reason for this is because if there is nothing beyond the system that we live in, if there's nothing beyond this universe, there is no way of knowing the answers to why. There's no way of finding objective truth. We can't go to the Big Bang and go, this is what caused it, this is what started it. We can't get to the edges of an ever-expanding universe and get far enough beyond it to look back and go, this is why. We're stuck within this system and all we can rely on is human thought, ingenuity, progress, and science. And faith and science are not opposed to each other. Faith and science are not fighting each other. They're just answering very different questions. Science is going, how does this all work? The world we live in, the universe we live in, how does it work? And science is phenomenal at answering that question of how, how does this work? I love the fact that science was actually initially started because it believed that there was rational intent behind the universe, therefore rational investigation of the universe could take place. But if there is no God, then we are left having to make sense of this world through science. The problem with that 
The problem with that is, as I've said, science can never look beyond the curtain. Science can't answer the why question. It has to operate within the closed system. It can't answer the big worldview questions of why am I here? Why do I exist? Why does it all exist? And scientists have to admit that as soon as science starts to try to answer that question, they're actually stepping into philosophy, theology, or speculation. Now, as a parent of young kids, I think it's become evident that my worldview is actually young kid parenting. Chaos and no time. That's my worldview, if I'm honest. No, it's not. Okay. But as a parent of young kids, you get these bubbles of time. Two hours feels like an eternity. And the other night, Layla and Nathan were sleeping, and La went out to visit a friend, and I had two hours. And unfolding in front of me in my mind's eye was all the things I have not been able to do for the last four years of parenting. And I was like, oh, two hours to do any one of these things. And I did what any parent does in that moment. I picked up my phone, opened Netflix, and started watching a random movie that I never wanted to watch. And I should have checked this beforehand. It got 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Jupiter Ascension. Jupiter Ascension. I should never have watched it. It's not in my genre at all, but I was like, two hours, I'm going to do this. Don't watch it, it's terrible. <laughs> but the premise of this movie is that humans didn't start on Earth. Humans started off in a distant galaxy on a different, distant planet, and they evolved over time so eventually they could, they could, um, they could uh, manipulate their DNA in such a way that they could use the DNA of other humans to extend their own life. And as they advanced and advanced and advanced using this process, they, they started running out of humans. So what do they do? They start seeding planets with less evolved humans. And so the answer to the big why question in this movie of planet Earth is that we're a farm, that we've been seeded by distantly advanced relatives who are one day going to harvest us so that they can live longer. Why did I tell you about this terrible movie <laughs> and ruin the plot? Dawkins, one of the leading, one of the most aggressive atheists against theists and leading scientists of our day and age, when pressed on this why, 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 where did the Bing Bang start? Where did matter originate? What was the first cause? Who was the initiator of the first cause? There has to have been a first cause in a universe that had a beginning and is ever expanding. Who and what was that? And Dawkins goes, we were seated by aliens. That's his answer. You see, when you remove God from the picture, there is no way of answering the why question. There is no way of answering the why question. We can only answer the how question. Friedrich Nietzsche is famously quoted as saying, God is dead, philosopher, thinker. And he said, God is dead. And that statement is often seen as a victory statement of Nietzsche. God is dead. We've killed him. We've fought him out of existence. We don't need him anymore. Humans can now live into our full potential. It's often used in that way. But it's not how he used it. 
He used it in such a way, and he did believe God was dead, and he was atheistic in his view and humanistic in his views. But what he was saying there is, we live in a time where more and more people are believing God is dead within the philosophical and scientific communities. Do we understand the full implications of that? And his statement, God is dead, was a lament as he realized the fullness of the implications of what it means that there is no design or intent behind the world that we live in. He realized that if there is no God, if there is no design, if there is no intent, then there is no inherent value to people. We are a random bunch of mistakes. And actually, this generation of humans need to actually give way to the next evolutionary step of humans. There is no purpose or inherent value in people. There is no inherent meaning or purpose to life. He understood that there's actually no justice if there's no designer who has a moral standard for us. What happens when Pilate questions truth? Justice goes out the window. He stands before a mob and he says to them, I see no fault in this man, Jesus. And then he goes and washes his hands and says, have him knowing what they're gonna do with him. If there's no truth, what does it matter if he's innocent, if he's not? What does it matter if he dies or he doesn't? What does anything matter? Tychides, he's a general and a philosopher who lived 400 years BC. He, he comments on the war between Sparta and Athens and life in general. And he says this, the strong do as they will and the weak suffer as they must. When we lose truth, there is no justice or moral standard. Nazi Germany were atheistic evolutionists who believed that they were at the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. And actually it was completely just and right and good for them to obliterate everybody else who was lower down the evolutionary process and to purify the coming generations and um, processes of evolution. And actually there's no moral standard if there is no God or creator or design to say that they were wrong. It just so happened that the allied forces were more powerful. Suffering when God is dead is random and without hope. And it will leave you angry, a victim or crushed. Dawkins says it, that this universe is one of cold indifference. And we basically just have to figure out how to live with that. Those are the implications of there not being truth. Those are the implications of not there being no God or designer. And now that we're thoroughly depressed, <laughs> the reality is there's no way of knowing whether there is a God or design or intent unless that which is from outside of creation steps into creation and says, this is what it's all about. This is why I made it. And this is why you are here. And that's what makes Jesus' statement so incredibly profound, so incredibly important. As C.S. Lewis says, Jesus was either a madman or Jesus changes everything. Because out of every single religion, he is the, the, Christianity is the only religion that claims that God stepped into human history to answer the big questions of why we're here and why it exists. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the way and I am the truth. 
He says to Pilate, this is the reason I was born, to bear witness to the truth. And if that is true, if Jesus is who he is, if Jesus is revealed truth, if Jesus is revealed objective truth, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he says nothing less than I am God, I have stepped into human history, I made this world, I created this world, I sustained this world, and I know why I did that, and I've stepped in to reveal that to you. If that is true, it means that the person of Jesus speaks to everything, from the smallest atom to the biggest things in this universe, Jesus' claim is I made it, I sustained it, and I have design and I have intent behind it, and nothing less. This is who I am. And it's why the Jewish authorities crucified him, because they said, no, you're not. If Jesus is who he says he is, it means that every single one of us would be wise to take our beliefs to him and compare our beliefs to him and see if they align to what he says is true about this world. To take our views on this world and what we believe to be real about this world to the person of Jesus and go, does he say that this is true and real about this world? It would make sense for us to take our personal subjective experiences, good and bad, to the person of Jesus and say, Jesus, help me make sense of these things in my life. If he is who he says he is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, we don't start with man to answer the big why questions. We start with God. Truth starts with the person of Jesus. And that means that we look to, we don't go, who am I and make sense of the world? We go, who is he? And in light of who Jesus is, I make sense of who I am. And in light of who I am, I then, and who he is, I start to make sense of this world. And it's wonderful what Jesus says to the answers, the answers he gives to the questions, who am I? He would say, you are created with purpose and design with inherent value and worth. And if you are a Christ follower, you are a beloved son and daughter of the creator of the universe. Why am I here to creatively continue to bring order to God's creation using my God-given gifts, talents, and skills to reflect his nature and his character, to live for his glory and the good of others? Ethics. All people have value and worth as created image bearers. No group or culture is superior or inferior in any way. God's ways and his objective moral standard is what everything will be judged by. No one will get away with anything. When Jesus wraps up human history, he will bring full and complete justice to everything on this earth. I said, when you suffer, believing that the universe is cold and indifferent, it is a painful place to suffer. When you suffer with Christ, you don't suffer with ideas about the world. You suffer with the creator of the universe alongside you, the one who knows suffering himself. And he pours out his presence, his power, his meaning, his hope, his strength into your suffering. And when you're not crazy or crushed or full of a victimhood mentality or self-pity and people ask the big question, why? You get to say, Jesus, 
He is alive and He is powerfully at work in this world and He is alive and He's powerfully at work in my life. And I know Him and I've experienced Him. He is true. He is more real than anything else. And then finally, Jesus is the life. So Jesus claims, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now the world's, I would love to unpack the fullness of what Jesus means by life. We just don't have time this evening to go into the fullness of what that means. But again, their Jewish ears would have heard that Jesus was claiming to be the fulfillment of every promise in the scriptures that God makes to offer his people life. Shalom, peace, relationship with him, abundance, peace between each other, peace, life with God. And Jesus was claiming I'm the full representation of that. And no matter what puzzle box you think is correct, no matter what worldview you subscribe to, no matter what way you think you should go or how to find the way or what map you should subscribe to, what belief systems you should live in, I think every single person agrees on the fact that the world is not the way it should be. I think all of us believe that. It's why we give ourselves to progress and it's why we give ourselves to invention because we're trying to make the world the way that we think it should be. We all have a desire for a better world. We all have a desire for a life that works, for the abundant life, for utopia. Stories throughout the ages have tried to describe that life. But society and Jesus have different reasons for why this world is not the way it is. Rousseau, a philosopher 200 years ago, said this. He said, humans at their most natural are actually inherently good. And it's society that corrupts us. And so if we can just get to our most natural state and fix society, then we will head towards the utopia that we're all longing for, the world that we're all longing for. If we can just fix all the injustices, the, the systemic problems, the bad governance, if we fix all those things in this world we will, and progress, we will reach where we're aiming for because we are inherently good and the problems exist out there. Jesus has a very di different diagnosis of why this world is not the way it should be. I think a great representation of the life that God promises is Eden, is the Garden of Eden. In Eden, what you have is you have perfect relationship between man and God, and you have perfect relationship horizontally between each other, and you have abundance without greed or need. That's Eden. I think that's what we're all longing for. What broke Eden was a lie. What was the lie that broke Eden? You don't need God. You can be like God and you can make the life you want. And that lie was believed and Adam and Eve ate the fruit which represented complete and utter rebellion against God where they rejected the truth about God for a lie. 
And ever since that moment, humanity has been in rebellion and conflict to God. And Jesus would say, it's that rebellion and that conflict and the believing of a lie, which he would call sin, which is the problem with this world. And the problem with sin is that it's in all of us. It's not out there. It's in every one of us. And we see that lie in our culture today. You can, you don't, we don't need God. Man can do it alone. We can find life, joy, and utopia without him. It's the same lie. It's the same lie. Expressive individualism, which says, I need to find my truth, live my truth, and use the world as a stage to express my truth, is the fullest expression of that life. Because what it does is it actually makes the entire universe and world about me. And Jesus would call that sin. And he would say, that's the problem with the world. It causes us to make everything about us. So it doesn't matter how much we get the systems right. Human greed, selfishness, and making everything about ourselves will corrupt them and break them and we will use power to abuse and we will take what's not ours. Sin is the problem. And Jesus says, the only way to the Father is through me. The only way to the new Eden, the only way to the, 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 the place your heart is longing for is through me. No one comes to the Father except through me and it's an exclusive claim. And people always freak out. How can Jesus be so exclusive and say that there is only one puzzle box, that there is only one way, that there is only one truth? And Jesus literally says that. I am the way, there is only one way. I am the truth, there is only one truth. And I am the only way to life. I am the life. That's his claim, it's exclusive. It's incredibly exclusive. But every single worldview is exclusive. If you're atheist, you're saying anyone who believes in any God is excluded. If you're theist, you're saying anyone who doesn't believe in God is excluded. If you're polytheist, you're saying anyone who doesn't believe in multiple gods is excluded. Certain sexual orientations exclude other sexual orientations and beliefs about marriage and vice versa. Every worldview is an exclusive claim about reality and how the world works and how the world should be. And what's so beautiful about the claim of Jesus and the exclusivity of his claim is that his claim comes with an offer. It's incredible, the story of Jesus. That in the center of human history, historical recorded reality, there was this person who claimed to be God, who stepped into human history, split our history into miracles, eyewitness accounts of the most profound and wonderful things, hundreds of them. We can use scientific processes of answering the how question to validate the resurrection of Jesus. There's all these claims, I am God, I am the one from outside of the system, I am objective truth and I will lay down my life and die and I will be raised and there's evidence to that resurrection. But what is so powerful is that the creator of the universe, the one from without the system, would humble himself, take on human form and go to a cross. And on that cross, he would experience the full weight and consequence of us believing a lie, us rejecting God 
And he would say, I've exposed that lie and I've come to you and all you need to do is admit that you believed a lie. Surrender that lie. Lay hold of me, truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And you can come to the Father. Whoever does that is welcome. Exclusive claim, incredibly free offer to whoever would surrender the lie and lay hold of truth. Do we have time for the band? (laughs) Can the band join me up here? Please. Christians in the room. I started off this message talking about a potential veneer of Christianity that we place over our beliefs. And I wonder if life had to apply the sticker of suffering, if life had to apply the sticker of difficulty or doubt or struggle or hardship or just normal life or COVID, and then that sticker gets ripped off your life, I wonder if the deep grains of truth of who Jesus is in his gospel would be revealed below that sticker. Or if we would see the chipboard of human secularism below that sticker. And I don't say that to judge us. I say that because I think Jesus wants to invite us into his deep truths about how the world is and who he is so that we can experience the fullness of his life in us in this community. Because that's all it's doing is it's a veneer with our life. But when we see Jesus for who he is and we align all that we think to be true to him, we get his life, we experience his life, we live in his life. That's why I ask us the question. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, I'm not inviting you to a bunch of philosophical ways of thinking about the world. I'm not inviting you to an argument about truth. I'm inviting you to a person who claims to be God himself. And your next step is probably as we sing to simply pray this prayer. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, would you meet me this evening? I wanna align my life to your truth. I'm willing to lay down the lie. And I would invite you to do that. Let's sing together in response.